0: Hello, it's H.J. Doom from the future here, just to let you know a few things before we get into the episode. Firstly, I make a great deal of the fact that I've now got a Patreon page, but I don't actually tell you what the URL is. The URL is patreon.com forward slash H.J. Doom, perhaps unsurprisingly. Secondly, we need to have a little word about the audio quality. The audio quality is not good in this episode. That's due to me having a nice new microphone, but not really understanding how to use it. I've done what I can with noise reduction and the like, but there are some areas where I've had to re-record sections and it is pretty obvious. So I'm very sorry about that. I hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment too much. Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights and Where to Find Them, the podcast in which an unemployed middle-aged man plays through the fighting fantasy game books he loved as a child. That middle-aged wastrel is me, H.J. Doom, and this episode I'm delighted to bring you a playthrough of Starship Traveller, the first fighting fantasy book with a space theme. A Starship Traveller, while well, Steve Jackson's second solo offering for the series was first published in 1983. It is illustrated by Peter Andrew Jones, who also did the frankly surreal cover art. This episode also sees the launch of my Patreon. I've thought long and hard about how to approach this. I have an issue asking people for money when it's something I would do anyway, but Before too long, I'm going to have to buy more fighting fantasy game books, and to do that I will sadly need money. Your support on Patreon will enable me to continue to produce this podcast in a timely fashion. Don't worry if you can't afford to chuck me a couple of quid, I'm in exactly the same position and I'm committed to making this podcast for the long haul and making it free to anyone who wants to listen. There's no tears or anything yet but I have said that if the total income from my Patreon hits £50 a month I'll commit to doing two episodes a month rather than the current one episode. If people are super generous then I'll also look at doing some bonus With the open business of shilling dealt with, let's dive straight into this episode and boldly go where all manner of TV sci-fi has gone before as we play through Starship Traveller. Before we get underway with the strange and unsettling voyage of the Starship Traveller, there is, I'm afraid, a certain amount of admin to do. I will try and breeze through this as quickly as I can. In addition to generating my own stats in the traditional fighting fantasy way of skill, stamina, and luck, I also need to generate some stats for the Starship Traveller itself. Uh, It has two stats, weapon strength and shields. My weapon strength is 10, and my shields are 16. I am the captain, who I've named Aspidistra Clunge. My skill is seven and my stamina is 20, meaning I almost certainly got my job because my dad or mum was in the army. I am assisted by a loyal and variously skilled crew, all of whom have their own skill and stamina. So I'll try and breeze through these as quickly as I can. First off, we have the science officer, Botulism Dongle, skill eight, stamina 21. The medical officer, Winkle Pop Trumpet skill 11, stamina 24. Uh, The security officer, Limoncello Rasp, skill 11, stamina 23. And the engineer, Zygote Clothammer, skill 9, stamina 17. Uh, I have two security guards who I'm not going to name because it's a mistake to get attached to them. Uh, Guard 1, skill 7, stamina 23. Guard 2, skill 9, stamina 22. Um, And a quick glance at the assembled crew suggests that any of them would have been a better choice as captain than me. So I feel as though my authority on this space adventure is off to a flying start. Without any further ado, let's get started. Panic. From your seat at the helm of the Starship Traveller, you study the VDU anxiously. Engineering section has reported an overdrive malfunction, which has locked the warp engines at a 10% velocity gain. You are watching the velocity indicator advancing rapidly through the safe region towards overload. You hit the communicator button and call engineering for further news. It is not good. The malfunction cannot be traced, and it will take another 13 minutes for a system check to provide a full analysis. You are heading towards the Celsian void, a known black hole. You may or may not avoid it, but your science officer has another plan. If you swing the ship through its immense gravitational pull, its gravity drag may just help reduce your speed as you travel away from it. This is worth a try, but the navigational tuning will have to be precise. You swing the starship hard to starboard as you enter the Celsian's gravitational field and fasten your eyes on the velocity indicator. To your great relief, the plan seems to be working. The game comes down from... 10% 10% to 5% to 0% to minus 5%. Loud cheers come from the crew, but you are still watching the velocity indicator. It is now showing minus 15%, then minus 25% and still falling. The ship is being sucked into the Celcian void. You hit the red alert button and instruct all the ship's personnel to strap themselves down. The ship begins to whine and shake as it rapidly accelerates towards the black hole. There is nothing you can do to avert the impending disaster. An almighty explosion rocks the ship and all the crew, including you, lose consciousness. So I think that confirms my suspicions that uh, Aspidistra Clunge is uh, not the finest starship captain in the fleet. You and the other crew members are regaining consciousness. Again, you hit the communicator and call for systems damage reports. All systems appear to be intact until engineering reports that the warp drive engines are dead. You are floating in space, but your drive reactors should be operational in 20 to 30 minutes. Your navigational officer is bewildered. He cannot identify your whereabouts, and the computer reports that you are in uncharted space. Your science officer has run an event analysis and you appear to have gone through a black hole, to a dimensional warp, and you are now in what seems to be a parallel universe. I have to say, we're taking this well. If I had been writing this book, there'd be quite a lot of paragraphs now that were just, you scream, you scream some more, there is some more screaming. I guess that's why I'm not in the Navy, because of, you know, the screaming. After some delay, you regain warp drive. Long range scans indicate three solar systems ahead, of which two may have intelligent life. Will you press on towards the life-bearing system ahead, turn port towards the other life-bearing system, turn to starboard towards the barren system? I feel as though we're not going to get back home, assuming that's even a good idea. I mean, this parallel universe might be absolutely lovely. You know, it might be like I don't know, Blackpool or, or Scarborough or something. But if we are going to get back home, I feel like life-bearing systems are the way forward. And I think going straight ahead is going to be the answer. So we'll press on towards the life-bearing system straight ahead. You increase speed towards a dull blue planet and start to orbit it. Short-range scanners indicate that it is a life-bearing planet. The most heavily populated area appears to be a city in the centre of a large island. You may beam down into the centre of this city, taking any other three crew members from the adventure sheet with you, or you may leave orbit and continue onwards. We're obviously going to beam down because uh, we came here to find information and there's, there's not going to be any information to be found from just disappearing. So I will beam down with uh, Security Guard 2, my Chief Science Officer Botulism Dongle, And my chief medical officer, Winkle Pop Trumpet, because I am a fan of original Star Trek and I feel that this is the perfect away party to go down to a planet. You will note that I didn't take security officer Limoncello Rasp, because you need at least one red shirt on these things. That's just the way it goes. You materialize on the planet's surface and look around. You are in a wide street of some kind, which is completely deserted. Buildings of sorts line the street and behind you, a large building stands at the end of the road. The buildings are strange structures. They are a multitude of shapes and sizes and all look incomplete. You may either continue down the road looking for signs of life, approach the large building behind you, or try one of the smaller buildings. There is an illustration of the uh, planet and I have to say it's not the best drawing I've ever seen. I'm not a good artist. I've never pretended to be a good artist, but it is the sort of thing that I feel like I could fairly straightforwardly replicate with a biro and a bit of A4. It's, it's not stirring me with the wonders of space exploration. However, we do have to get on with the plot. So I'm going to try one of the smaller buildings first. You arrive at an odd shaped building with rounded walls. Several strange and apparently meaningless sticks protrude from the front walls. The door is open and you cautiously walk inside. Slumped over a table is a bulky figure, apparently asleep. Your entrance disturbs the creature and it raises its head, sees you and springs to its... foot? Rather than legs, it has a single stump, something like a tree trunk. It bellows loudly and your translator does not translate. Will you hold up your hands to show you mean no harm? Draw your phasers and shoot. Well, I come in peace, and I'm hoping that holding my hands up to show I mean no harm will demonstrate this admirably. The creature settles down. It was apparently just surprised, having been woken from its sleep by complete strangers and such ugly ones at that. It explains that it is a timol and seems to be quite a friendly creature it hops around the room and offers you food and drink, which you politely decline. The planet is a settlement planet populated by all sorts of different aliens, at first mainly creatures who could not bear their own home planets. I know exactly how they feel. And those that are highly adventurous. As the planet proved to be a pleasant place to live, with a gentle climate, it was not long before word spread throughout the galaxy of this promised land of freedom and equality attracting many more settlers. The problem was that no one was allowed to assume a position of responsibility. Everyone was entirely equal. The result is that after many years of settlement, the place is in utter chaos. Its inhabitants have not even decided on a name for the planet. Communism doesn't work, kids. Capitalism is the only way, is I think the uh, unsubtle message of this. And as a hardened communist... I I do take issue with it. In reality, communists would have got a lot of stuff done. They'd have formed maybe two, three, four hundred different committees. You explain your own predicament to the Tmol, how you are lost in a universe parallel to your own. The creature knows little about astronomy and interstellar travel, but suggests you head for the planet Kulamata, as its civilization is very advanced. You thank him for his information and leave. You may, if you wish, head for the main building at the end of the road, or return to the ship to travel onwards. I don't think we're quite done exploring. This planet appears to be badly disorganised, but functionally harmless, which is the polar opposite of our own planet. Steps lead up to the large building. An inscription on the door indicates that it is a building of some importance. You knock, but there is no reply, although you can hear excited chatter coming from within. You try the door, and it opens. You step into a large entrance hallway. Several pairs of aliens of a variety of sizes and shapes cross the corridor in front of you, travelling purposefully from room to room and arguing excitedly with each other. A mysterious creature dressed in shabby blue robes notices you and shuffles over. Its face cannot be seen, but its eyes shine bright blue at you. It speaks and your translator interprets. Ah, you look interesting. Where do you think the new medicine house should go? You explain that you are new to these parts and that you would like to meet some person of authority. The alien laughs. (laughs) No one has authority here, my friend. We are all equal. Come, let me show you round. He offers to take you to either the main meeting hall or a general tour. Uh, Let's go to the main meeting hall. Let's get to the, the heart of the matter. You enter the main meeting hall and sit down in a crowded debating chamber, packed with aliens of all shapes and sizes. You ask your host, who's called fioral, what is going on, and he informs you that the debate is to decide where to put a new medicine house and that it's been going on for the equivalent of a year. As there is no central stage, you ask who is talking. Everyone, says fioral, we believe in equality and everyone has a right to speak. Apparently, debating here is unlike methods used on Earth. Here, everyone collects together and talks in little groups. As debaters move from one group to another, gradually new ideas spread through the whole of the chamber until everyone is thinking along the same lines. At this point, decisions get implemented. You ask whether this takes a long time, and Fioral agrees it does, but that it's the fairest way and, and prevents a convincing speaker swaying the audience or establishing himself as leader. Okay, so I have judged this very harshly, and I feel chastened. As the debate seems to be getting nowhere, you decide to leave. Fioral offers to take you to the travel and maps room, or you can return to the ship. Well, the travel and maps room sounds pretty vital to me. The travel and maps room is in a state of chaos. Books and charts lie all over the floor and the various tables in the room. A small withered alien with a large head, blue skin and long fingers is asleep in one corner but wakes as you enter. You ask first for maps of the planet but can learn little from them. While you wonder whether any of the star charts will be of use, the little man finds a large map and allows you to study it. Apparently you are in a solar system around the sun Magnus. Apart from this one, there is only one other life-bearing planet in this system called Trax, orbiting Magnus a little further out. Trax was recently devastated by war, and many of its inhabitants left to settle on this planet. The other two nearest planets, although light years away, are Mata, orbiting a purple sun, and Makomen, orbiting a double star. No black holes are to be found on the chart. You thank the creature for his help and leave the building, bidding goodbye to Fioral as you leave. Outside you beam back to your ship. I'm going to write down that useful clue that Meta is orbiting a purple sun, because we were told Meta was very technologically advanced. Back on the bridge, you set coordinates for your next journey. Another life-bearing planet orbits the same sun a little further out, and you may visit this. Or you may head further onwards towards a purple sun some light years away. Well, we're going to go to the purple sun and the planet Meta. Approaching the purple star, your scanners indicate that the second planet has an atmosphere ideal for life. You drop into orbit around this planet and scan the surface. There are strong indications of intelligent activity. Indeed, it is likely that this planet's civilization is further advanced than your own. You can either beam down to the planet or press onwards. Down to the planet we will go. You try an all-frequency broadcast several times but receive no message in reply. Selecting one officer and a security guard from the adventure sheet, you enter the Transmatter unit and beam down to the surface. You materialise in a deserted street. Tall buildings on one side tower over you, while on the other side of the street the buildings are small. Perhaps these are private dwellings. The architecture is alien but no kind of life can be seen. In the distance ahead of you, down the road, you can hear a whirring sound. Soon, you can see a strange vehicle, which seems to be heading towards you. It is a hover car of some kind, and it is moving slowly. As you decide what to do, your translator picks up a sound. Over here! Quick! You look around and see a man-sized, somewhat insect-shaped creature beckoning you into one of the small buildings. Uh, There is another illustration which, yeah, I'd say somewhat insect-shaped pretty much covers it. It's another not great illustration, if I'm honest. Will you follow the strange creature in or ignore him and wait for the vehicle to approach? I will follow him in. Feel as though he'd have A good reason for for beckoning me over and acting surreptitiously rather than obviously. You run off the road and follow him into the building. Just in time, he exclaims. You don't want the PCs to find you in the street, do you? You have no idea what he is talking about. You explain that you are not from this planet. He is on his guard. You reassure him that you mean no harm. You just want information which may help you to get home. He calms down. You are on the planet Kulamata, he informs you. The PCs you have just escaped from are the population controllers. On this planet no one dies, but as the population increases it is necessary to exterminate some of us, to make room for others. The PCs have the authority to exterminate anyone they like within certain quota limits, without reason. They would certainly have killed you if they caught you outside after curfew hours. Suddenly. The door crashes open and three creatures in armored uniforms step in. I thought I saw them enter this building, their leader declares. Outside, he orders. Your host protests that you are aliens and did not know about the curfew laws, but the PC leader points a finger and an electric blue ray burns through his chest. You decide it would be prudent to follow the PCs outside. Yup! Not going to disagree with that. I feel bad for Mr. Insect Alien. Nothing good ever comes of meeting me. You explain that you are from another planet and therefore know nothing of their curfew laws. This is illegal to be outside of the curfew, says their leader. The penalty is extermination. Enter this vehicle. Will you enter as they wish? Hmm, no. Draw your phases and fire? Mm, maybe. We'll pretend to comply with their wishes and take them by surprise. I think we have a winner. We're going to pretend to comply with their wishes and take them by surprise. You walk up to the entrance door as if to climb into the vehicle. As you pass by the aliens, you signal to the others and the three of you spring on them. This proves to be a rather fruitless exercise as the three creatures are immensely strong. They fling you to the ground, but as you fall, you manage to grab the helmet off one of the aliens. It stops dead in its tracks in a very artificial pose, as if some switch had suddenly turned it off. A leader grabs a helmet and replaces it on his colleague, who instantly springs back to life. You realise you will be no match for the creatures and climb into their vehicle as they have ordered. But your discovery may prove a useful clue in helping to escape from these PCs, as they call themselves. If you proceed along certain ways, you will be called upon to make a skill roll. Your knowledge makes it likely that you will make the right move. You may deduct two from your roll when rolling against your skill, which is Mark's skill. Asterisk, asterisk. This will make more sense at the time, I am promised. Good, because I will need all the help I will get. I wonder if it's an accident that these psychotic robot things are called PCs, as in like player characters from Dungeons and Dragons, who are, you know, generally speaking, fairly genocidal. Answers on a postcard. As you enter the vehicle, it rocks from side to side. Your captors climb in and start the hover engine, swinging the car round the way it came. You travel for half an hour or so and finally stop outside a large round building. Other similar cars have stopped there as well, and numerous aliens are being led into the building. You are taken inside and put into a room which is evidently a cell of some kind, along with four aliens. They seem resigned to the fact that they are about to be exterminated as part of a population control program. You cannot understand why they are so unemotional about their impending death. This was actually Star Trek. I think Kirk would have given them a bit of a harangue and maybe thrown a punch or two in order to shock them out of their complacency. One of the uniformed creatures calls for your party. You'll have to act quickly. Will you try and fight your way out, try and contact the ship, or try and arrange to see someone in authority? I am going to try and arrange to see someone in authority. I am, after all, both English and white. This sort of thing really goes badly for me. You make your request, but the alien merely shoves you forward. This is not possible, it replies. We are to be taken to the Extermination Chamber. You may try and overpower it while you are alone, or you may follow it to see what will happen to you next. I don't particularly fancy trying to overpower them any more now than I did earlier, so I guess we're going to have to just sort of wait for a better time to strike. Following the guard, you turn down another corridor, which leads to a large open room. Various armored guards seem to be directing civilians through a large open doorway at one end of the room, from which a dull red glow is coming you are directed to the end of the line. Do you have your science officer with you? I do. Roll two dice and see if the total rolled is equal to or less than your science officer's skill, asterisk, asterisk, indicating a better chance of success. Uh, My science officer has a skill of eight, but I can deduct two from my roll of nine to get a seven, which succeeds. Your science officer has been observing the aliens and has noticed that something is strange and not quite natural about them. He believes that these creatures may not be creatures at all, that you are in fact on a planet controlled by androids, artificially manufactured robots made to resemble living creatures. He suggests you try setting your communicator to a jamming frequency, which you do. To your surprise, all the aliens in the room are suddenly frozen, as if time is standing still. While they are all transfixed, you quickly leave the room. Lucky escape there. You head for the centre of the complex, dodging round the corridors so as to avoid the creatures. You try your communicator several times to reach the ship, but something is jamming the signal. You pass one room in which the walls are covered with electronic equipment. Perhaps this is the transmission room, transmitting the signal which is blocking your own signal to the ship. Two aliens sit inside, but your attempts to contact the ship on your communicator have turned them into statues. Entering the room, you play with the controls until eventually a signal comes back through your communicator from the ship. You give the order to beam up straight away. It will take several seconds to fix on your exact coordinates, and while you wait, you remove one of the alien's helmets. Inside the helmet, the creature's head... Is a mass of electronic circuitry. You have been captured by androids. You keep a helmet for investigation on the ship and moments later the transmatter beam locks on to take you up. That was quite an exciting escape, I enjoyed it. Leaving orbit, you scan space ahead of you. There is a planet ahead, some 3.6 light years away, which may support life. You enter warp speed and head towards it. The electronics lab reports that the helmet you brought back was indeed an advanced piece of work. With a few adjustments, they will be able to prepare it so that when you wear it, you may increase your skill by one point. This will undoubtedly be useful, especially as I am terrible at everything. I'm going to put on the useful helmet. I could do with one of those in real life, in all honesty. You approach a medium-sized blue-green planet and take up orbital position. Scanning the planet's surface reveals several clusters of intelligent life forms. You try to contact them, but nothing comes up on the radio. Will you beam down onto the planet to investigate, or leave orbit and continue onwards? If you beam down, you may take three crew members from the adventure sheet with you. Last time, I did not take the security officer, and it made me very, very, very concerned about doing fights, because he's the only one who can actually do a fight. So this time, we will take Limoncello Rasp, his mighty skill 11 down, and we will take Science Officer botulism Dongle, because they were useful last time, and Security Guard 2, the slightly less expendable of the two available security guards. You land on the planet and look around. A thunderstorm is raging around you and it is pouring with rain. You are standing on the rocky ground about 100 metres from what appears to be a village of some kind. We've been down to Wales, haven't we? Three aliens, presumably villagers, are shuffling around about halfway to the village. And as you appear, they are startled and turn to face you. They are strange, podgy creatures with long necks and stumpy legs. That's definitely whales, then. One of the aliens turns and waddles off back to the village at what must be a running pace. The other two are advancing towards you with weapons, long pointed sticks drawn. When you wait for them to arrive... Or walk towards them to meet them halfway or make a dash for the village. i am going and meet them halfway, I guess. There's another, again, I feel like I'm ragging on the illustrator here, but it just looks like it took him about half an hour. really does. I don't know what kind of deadline he was under. Maybe that's part of the issue, but it really does not look like a great deal of time and care has been lavished over this particular illustration. I am going to go and meet them halfway. They hold their ground and ready their weapons. They shout at you and through your translator you hear that they are telling you to remain where you are. You may obey them and wait for them to reach you or continue. I think I will wait, I guess. Let's not make any obviously hostile moves. I kind of, I feel like I'm going to have to punch someone in the face at least once on this adventure just for the full captain kirk experience but for now i think uh, discretion is the better part of valor through your translator you talk to them explaining your mission they are suspicious and hold you at bay with their weapons but agree to take you to the village elder to talk hooray as you enter the village area other aliens shuffle towards you inquisitively you are marched to a large hut in the center of the clearing to meet the village elder you enter this hut and see a large somewhat wrinkled alien squatting in a far corner After you have exchanged introductions, you begin to question him. Would you ask him about the planet and its inhabitants? Or do you believe this primitive race can be of little help to you in your mission but ask anyway about their knowledge of astronomy? That is phrased very oddly in a way that suggests I will either wildly anger them by such a question or they will turn out to have a surprisingly detailed knowledge of astronomy. I'm going to ask them about astronomy. As you suspected, their knowledge of astronomy is virtually non-existent, much like mine. You wind up your talk and signal the ship to beam you back on board. They are bewildered as you dematerialize in front of them. On board ship, you plan your next course. Feels like I might have missed something vital. You leave orbit and probe with your scanners for likely destination. Some 3.3 light years away is a large red planet which you can head towards. And I will. You switch to warp drive and head towards the red planet. As you reduce from warp speed, you approach a small grey planet. Will you investigate this or will you continue towards your original destination? I mean, I've no idea where I am. One planet, honestly, as good as the next in many ways. So we'll go for the little grey planet. The planet appears to have no life on it, but scanners detect some sort of activity, perhaps the regular workings of a machine. You decide to investigate and send out a party in a recon plane to see what is happening. They pilot the plane to the area of the signal and land on the planet. It is rocky and barren, but not far from where they have landed. They find a scout ship, of a type they have never come across before, crashed into the surface. Who'd have thought that travelling to a parallel universe would involve finding technology you don't recognise? Would you tell them to investigate it further or return to the ship? Um Investigate further, like they've not been named. Um, it's not any actual members of my crew, which means that even if they do get eaten by wolves, space wolves, and it's no skin off my nose, quite honestly, they can find no signs of the pilot. Perhaps he has died or was killed in the crash. I mean, both of those would leave a body. An automatic signal, probably a type of mayday call, is being transmitted by the ship's radio. There's nothing else to see on the planet. Your crew return and fly back to the ship. Onwards. Curiously uh, downbeat and irrelevant little vignette. Landing the recon plane, the party make their way to the briefing room to report to you. As they relate their findings, they are interrupted suddenly with an urgent message. Captain! We have lost three of our engineering personnel who are involved with docking the recon plane. They are all dead. What will be your first command? Oh dear. I can either put the landing party into quarantine in the medical section, seal off the docking bay, or jettison the recon plane. I mean, obviously, some mad space disease. I spoke too soon when I said what a curiously pointless little vignette. Okay. Uh... God, I feel the burden of command weighing heavily on my shoulders at this point. I am going to... We didn't find a body. That's the thing that I find concerning about that planet. So I am going to assume that some kind of invisible alien has snuck aboard the recon plane, and it's not a disease, it's actual just straight-up murders. Also, if it was a disease that killed that, Quickly, you'd expect the pilot of the plane and what have you to be affected first. So we're going to seal off the docking bay. Quickly, the crew seal off the affected area so as to prevent the spread of this unknown killer. No more deaths are reported. Using an EVA, extravehicular activity suit, your medical officer examines the body of one of the victims. She finds that the man has been poisoned. The planet below must have some sort of poisonous gas in its atmosphere This has now been carried back onto the ship. Will you get the MO to search for an antidote and treat the crew or evacuate the air from all affected sections? Oh, this is a tough one. This is a real proper dilemma. I am going to get the MO to search for an antidote with which to treat the crew. It may already be too late. It may already have spread all the way through. We need an actual answer, not to just keep reacting, but to take proactive decisions. Search for an antidote. Roll two dice for your medical officer. Is the roll equal to or lower than her skill? So uh, she has a skill of 11. I roll a 6. Good old Winkle Pop Trumpet comes through in a crisis. Your MO comes up with a possible antidote and tries it out on herself, entering the affected area without an EVA suit. Watching her on a monitor screen, you see her enter the docking bay. Moments later, she falls to her knees. Your antidote has not been successful and you have lost your M.O. Oh dear. R.I.P. Winkle Pop Trumpet. So uh, yes, my new medical officer uh, has the same skill as the previous medical officer, minus two, so that's a skill of nine. Rolls for stamina as normal, gets a total of 16 and is named uh, Praxis Fig Newton. I have to say, this is going I think, exactly as well as putting me in command of anything other than a minibar would go. You give the instruction to evacuate all air from the affected area and all crew within the area are instructed to wear EVA extravehicular activity suits as they will be in a vacuum. The air is pumped out into space and half an hour later fresh air is introduced. Your science officer checks this new air and it is found to be poison free. If you ever find yourself in a crisis, think of what I would probably do and do the opposite, is my advice. By the time you've done 60 fighting fantasy books, you're going to have quite a corpus of terrible decision making on which to base your own life choices. It's a service, really. Back on the bridge, you may set your course. Ahead of you are two planets, a large red planet, a blue planet, or a small fast-moving spot which shows signs of life. I'm going to go for the spot. That sounds exciting, and I'm guessing I can look at the red and the blue planet afterwards if necessary. You head out into space with scanners probing ahead of you. A small, fast-moving dot comes within range. As you approach it, you identify it as another ship. You send out an all-frequency radio message, and soon an alien face appears on your screen. The face is brown, scaly, and somewhat reptilian, and introduces itself as Commander McC- Marl of the Imperial Ganzig Confederation. Have you come across the Imperial Ganzig Confederation before? I think I've got their first two albums somewhere, but uh, no, no, I haven't in the context of Starship Traveller. No, I have not. I mean, generally speaking, if a thing looks ugly and scaly and reptilian, it's usually a badon. Also, if it's called something like the Imperial Ganzig Confederation, it's usually a badon. So, um, Yeah, I I think this one's probably going to be a wrong one, but we shall see. Mkmal declares that you are trespassing in Confederation territory and claims you as a prisoner. He instructs you to follow his ship to a nearby starbase. I knew it was going to be a wrong one. I knew it. If you will accompany him, you can. If you want to refuse to be captured, you can do that too. Well, I think it's about time these uh, phasers and that and photon torpedoes or something which is... Similar but legally distinct from a photon torpedo. Source of action, so I'm going to refuse to be captured. The Gansagites warn you that refusal to comply with their orders will force them to open fire. You may either decide against a battle and let M- Moll take you to his starbase, or order your crew to battle stations and attack. Uh, the ship is significantly weaker than mine, with a weapon strength of 8 and a shield of 12. So I'm going to fight, damn it charge up the phasers, fire photon torpedoes. I'll see you when I've done the uh, fighting bit. Okay, so I have uh, defeated the Ganzigites very handily. Um, There's a peculiar thing. Ship-to-ship combat works by trying to roll under your weapon strength and then trying to roll over the enemy's shields to determine the amount of damage. It's simple enough, but uh, I'm not going to get into the details. Anyway, every single attack roll that the Gansagites made was exactly equal to their weapon strength, which was a bit spooky after the third or fourth time. Um, so anyway, I, I blew them out of the sky with, with no real effort. So that's nice. You have two choices. A large grey planet is some 2.7 light years away. Or you can approach a small planet, a short distance ahead, at sublight speed. Well, let's go for the small planet. I'm not convinced there's a massive difference, but we'll find out. You take up orbit position around a small planet circling a large red star. Scanners indicate the planet is probably devoid of life. The surface is hot and volcanic. You beam down to explore or leave. No, I'm gonna. The last time I investigated the apparently dead planet, it was bad. I'm gonna make. I'm going to assume that the same thing holds true here. I'm just going to leave. I've already killed poor old Winkle Pop Trumpet um, several engineers. Let's just go. Like, the planet of the volcanoes does not sound like something that's going to be mad full of hints on how to get home. Your nearest destination is a large grey planet some 2.3 light years ahead. You set course and enter warp speed, dropping out again a short distance from this planet. Sensors indicate that you are travelling past a large spaceport some distance to starboard. If your ship is damaged, you may wish to dock for repairs. Nope, my ship is fine. I take a much better care of government property than I do of human life, apparently. Otherwise, you may continue onwards, which is, I guess, what we'll do. You take up orbit position around the large grey planet and scan the surface. There are positive signs of intelligent life, and you try an all-frequency radio message. Sometime later, a message comes through and you transfer it to the screen. A grey-coloured alien with a tiny round mouth and a flattened nose appears and introduces himself as Tate of the Malini Mining Outpost. You introduce yourself and tell him of your mission. You learn that Malini is a mining planet, mining melanite, a valuable mineral. He invites you down to the planet and suggests your crew may well be interested in a visit as the contests sporting events arranged for the entertainment of the miners are in full swing. He gives you the coordinates for beaming down, but interference distorts the message, and you cannot be certain whether he gave you 223 or 223 You may prefer to ignore this planet and continue on, or you can try one of the two coordinates. I'm gonna go for two two three four seven three eight three. I mean I spent quite a while staring at the two to see if there was some kind of clue, but I really don't think there is. I mean I am gonna say that maybe the fact that the last three digits are all the same is maybe a clue. Like two two three four seven three eight three, but honestly, I'm really, really reaching. You select two crew members from the adventure sheet to accompany you to the planet. So that will be uh, Limoncello Rasp, the security officer, and Botulism Dongle, the science officer. As you materialise on its surface, you are greeted by K-Tate. He invites you into his office and tells you more about the planet. You explain that you feel the only way back to your own universe is to travel back through a black hole and ask whether anyone on this planet is likely to be able to help. I'm kind of hoping that we're going to have more than a vague feeling that this is the thing to do before we plunge into another black hole, but hey... Tate thinks this is likely that he will be able to help. A uh, sleeper on his desk summons him to the arena, in quotes. He makes his apologies and leaves. You await his return. You wait for perhaps an hour, but Kit uh, Tate does not return. The door opens and a hover robot enters the room. It stops abruptly as it senses you, and various whirrings indicate it is contacting its central processor. It speaks to you, telling you to follow it. If you consent to follow it, you can. If you insist on waiting for c- tate, you can do that too. I mean, I guess we can follow the robot. You follow the hover robot along a passageway of corridors. Eventually it indicates a room that you should enter. You go into the room and wait, but nothing seems to be happening and no one comes to investigate you. So this is this a giant branch of Marks and Spencers? I'm just going to be sat here for the rest of eternity while everyone just ignores me. The walls of the room you are in are bare. There appears to be no door in the doorway, but the boot which you toss at the doorway bounces back, confirming your suspicion that you are imprisoned within the room by an invisible energy sheet. Sometime later, guards return with a supervisor who asks whether you are going in for the contests. Will you tell him that you are? Or try and make him listen to your story? Now here, listeners, I'm going to look at the front cover of Starship Traveller, which appears to show some kind of contest. And what it mostly seems to be is a contest between some humans or humanoids and a giant robot with a big space knife. And the contest seems to be who can murder who. So I'm going to take this information and I'm going to use it to determine that I should probably try and make him listen to my story Throw two dice and compare the total with your own skill score. Yes, I get an eight, which is just enough to pass with my magic helmet. I love my magic helmet. The guards find your story highly implausible. Cutting you off in mid-sentence, they briskly shove you out into the corridor. Under armed guard, you are taken to a waiting room and left with several other competitors. Will you ask them more about the contests or ask them how you may escape? I think escape is my number one priority at this point. The aliens sharing your room are a quarrelsome bunch, perhaps miners who, tiring of the mines, are hoping to get rich quick since the prizes for the games in which they are entered are apparently valuable. The chances of escape, you are told, are slim. The anti-rooms are heavily guarded, and the guards are armed with nerve sticks which inflict tremendous pain on their victims. You may either uh, try your luck at whatever contests are in store or plot an escape by ambushing the guards as they enter the room. We've got Security Officer Limoncello Rasp with us, so I feel like an ambush maybe on the cards. As the guards enter the room to take the aliens to their quark test, you spring upon them. In the battle, the guards may use their nerve sticks. Each time one of your landing party is hit by a guard, throw a die. If you roll a 4, 5 or a 6, the hit is with a nerve stick, which will do 4 stamina points of damage instead of the normal 2. A roll of a 1, 2 or 3 means normal damage only. Uh, For hand-to-hand combat rules, turn to the relevant paragraph, but remember this reference so you can return afterwards. So we've got three guards, one with a skill of eight, stamina seven, one with a skill of seven, stamina seven, and a third guard with a skill of eight, and a stamina of seven. Let's see what happens. Okay, that was quite exciting. The rules for this kind of what is fundamentally a mass brawl They're not the most elegant rules I've ever encountered, uh, even by the low standards of fighting fantasy game books. But, uh, yeah, it does create a kind of exciting tension because I'm bad at fighting, but not terrible. My uh, security officer, Limoncello Rasp, is really good at fighting. And my science officer, Botulism uh, Dongle, is absolutely terrible at fighting. So it was wondering whether Botulism Dongle was going to stay alive for long enough that Limoncello Rasp could take out his opponent and I could sort of hold my own. And anyway, uh, Limoncello Rasp did the business, lots of face punching, and and dongle took his lumps, so he's down to stamina 17, and I kind of just, yeah, held my own. Eventually, Limoncello took everybody out, so yeah, hooray for bringing the uh, extremely violent security officer down to the planet with me. You may contact the ship and beam back aboard quickly, ready to continue your journey. You now have two choices. You may head towards a large wheel-shaped structure hanging in space, or you may enter hyperspace and jump towards a small black planet. Okay, I think the wheel-shaped structure hanging in space is presumably a spaceport. That sounds like the sort of place that a uh, traveller such as ourselves could pick up some useful information, so let's go straight there rather than to the small black planet. You slow down as you approach a large wheel-shaped structure rotating slowly in space. Making radio contact, you learn it is the spaceport Loja Mill. Your ship is welcome to dock and there are facilities for repairing ships, but payment must be made in a currency you have never heard of. Have you picked up anything during your travels which you might be able to use to pay? No, I've been mostly getting people killed, or at least punched up. If you don't, you may attempt to bargain with them, or you can decide not to bother and continue with your journey. I will attempt to bargain with them. You explain that you have no currency and ask if there is anything else they would accept. The only needs they have are food and personnel, and they are willing to let you dock if you will order one or some of your crew to remain permanently assigned to the spaceport. There is a general consensus among the crew that they would be willing to sacrifice themselves in the interest of saving the ship, but will you allow them to go? I think less that they'd be willing to sacrifice themselves and more that they'd be quite keen to escape the tyrannical rule of a captain who has clearly got no idea what he's doing. Like, I imagine the hand's shot up. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll go. We'll take one for the team. So anyway, I will allow them to do so. I'll allow them to volunteer. You are now committed to leaving behind a certain number of crew members in exchange for docking and repair facilities at the starport. Determine who they will require to assign to them. Run down the following list, throwing one die for each person. Each one that you roll a six for will have to remain at the spaceport when you leave and will play no further part of your adventure. So it uh, can be the science officer, catering officer, administration assistant, entertainment officer, cleaner, medical officer, hairdresser, engineering officer, electronics expert, security officer, navigation officer and ship's cat. Well, they can have any of the rest, but they will have the cat over my dead body. OK, I shall roll for those. So obviously the only one they actually wanted was the ship's cat, and um, that's disappointing. I love cats, but I guess we'll be leaving Little Tiddles on the station. I mean, to be fair, it probably means that Little Tiddles has got a significantly higher chance of surviving than the rest of us. So could be worse. I'm going to pretend very hard that they have no interest in eating the ship's cat. Inside the spaceport, you follow the corridor until you are approached by a hovering device of some kind denounces itself as a service robot and asks if it may be of assistance. Now, this is an illustration that, again, it's, it's simple, but I actually quite like it. It looks like something straight out of Doctor Who or Blake 7 or Star Trek. It's, it's a simple line drawing with heavy shading, but yeah, it does the job. I get the impression this might be someone who may be better at doing robots than other things. You may ask the service robot to either take you to someone of authority Whether there are recreation facilities here, or how you might go about giving the ship a service overhaul. I think the only one of those that's really going to be of any interest to me is to speak to someone in authority. I am still very white. The service robot leads you to a waiting room. After several minutes, you are shown into a plush office with polished metal walls. Behind a desk, standing before a large window, looking out into space, sits a large creature. It has a large head and a torso, and it is shaped like an old-fashioned egg-timer. The alien introduces himself as I and asks how he may help you. He is apparently the controller of this spaceport. You explain your position, and ask whether he might be able to help you find your way back to your own universe. He asks you to wait while he contacts his mapping section. Sitting bolt upright in a state of meditation, he appears to be contacting someone by telepathy. Either that while he's just fallen asleep. You wait patiently. Suddenly he snaps out of his trance. I cannot guarantee that this information will help you, he says, but my mapping officer has done some studies on gateways between universes. Seems likely that two universes will touch in the near future. Star date 77 to be precise. Although there is no way of telling whether this is likely to be your own universe. You will be able to transfer only through a black hole, but he cannot be certain which one. You thank him for his information and return to the ship. That, my friends, is a clue. I shall write it down. Starting up the ship's engines, you leave the spaceport and head off into deep space. Your crew are becoming anxious about their fate. Will they be spending the rest of their lives searching space for a dimension gate which may never appear? You are called on to make a statement to reassure them. Have you learned the time and space coordinates of the black hole, which will hopefully take you back to your own universe? I have not yet found them. You call all the section heads to the briefing room and explain to them the necessity of keeping up the crew's morale. You do not yet have enough information to guide the ship to your escape route, and you must keep searching. You will keep searching until everyone dies due to my stupidity. It doesn't say that, but you are confident that you will eventually discover the whereabouts of a suitable black hole. Your officers try their best with the crew, but morale is low. There are reports of two suicides. The medical section becomes overloaded with crews suffering from nervous disorders. Your navigation officer contacts you excitedly. Captain, he exclaims, sensors have picked up a black hole. 4.2 light years from here. You decide on an all or nothing course and enter warp drive towards it. You drop out of warp drive a safe distance from the black hole. Your science officer works out your optimum course on the ship's computer. As you advance, you can feel the immense gravitational pull of a collapsed star. You allow the ship to be sucked in while the crew straps themselves in. The ship is ripped forward into the void and all personnel pass out. Unless there's something that they don't trust me to carry on searching on the basis of what they've seen. Like, entirely fairly, they're just like, no, seriously, just let's get this over with. We'll just plunge straight into the first black hole we pass. If we don't find one, we'll just plunge straight into the nearest sun we pass. Anything, anything to just make this horror stop. You will never know whether or not this was the correct black hole. Perhaps it was your angle of entry, or maybe it was your speed, or even the information you have. Whatever the error, the traveller never emerges from the void. Your mission has been unsuccessful. I mean, if my mission was to get my entire crew killed, I would say that my mission has been very successful. But no, I guess that that wasn't the mission. So uh, there we have Starship Traveller, first foray away from fantasy. Uh, I will be back in just a moment with my impressions of Starship Traveller and a few closing thoughts. This one is very definitely a mixed bag. I think this is the first fighting fantasy book that pushes into new territory, but fails more than it succeeds. Arguably, I'm I'm striving to keep the tone optimistic because I did have a good time playing through the game book, but there are a number of problematic elements that are working against my enjoyment and seemingly at every turn. I don't want this to become overtly negative. This is supposed to be a celebration of the game books of my youth, after all, but this is one I didn't much care for as a child, and even though I was an idiot as a child, this feels like one area where I maybe made the right call. However, it's not all doom and gloom. I think there's some great ideas within Starship Traveller, and the reasons why it doesn't work in places eliminate both the talents of the author in other areas and other books and the limitations of the genre. Steve Jackson was always the more creatively restless of the fighting fantasy team for my money. We saw in his first solo penned gamebook, Citadel of Chaos, a very stark departure in presentation and tone from The Warlock of Firetop Mountain. I think he was someone interested in the ways in which a branching narrative could serve different purposes, and that's very evident here. Um, He always seemed more interested in exploring different settings and different genres with his books than uh, Ian Livingstone, his co-creator. So he'd follow Starship Traveller with a horror game book uh, and then a superhero game book. And at the same time as he was producing this one, he was working on his epic four-part fantasy game book series, Sorcery, which were much more expansive and detailed than the main fighting fantasy line. I think Ian Livingstone very quickly grasped what a good fighting fantasy book looked like and he has an instinctive ability to create a world that, that felt alive and made sense within the confines of the medium. Starship Traveller is Jackson butting right up against the limits of what you can actually accomplish with this format. The idea of doing a Star Trek themed game book was a good one in principle. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the original series and in the early 80s it was still sufficiently deeply embedded in the popular culture that a writer could expect a decent degree of familiarity with the source material. The very best bits of Starship Traveller feel like miniature Star Trek episodes, like the planet where no one is in charge would have had Captain Kirk foaming at the mouth at the sheer inefficiency of it all. Being pressured into taking part in a mysterious and potentially deadly alien game is is a classic, and they did several episodes of Star Trek on that very theme. The sinister robot population controllers, they're straight out of high-concept 1960 science fiction. And um, there's a few goofy moments thrown in for good measure that feel entirely tonally appropriate for something that's based on a series that gave us the triples. The problem is that none of these ideas get developed in enough detail. So I was left with the feeling that I was watching six episodes of Star Trek back-to-back on Fast Forward, And it meant that beaming down to an alien planet ended up feeling routine and unexciting, which is the absolute opposite of what it should feel like. Adding to the woes, there's a whole host of extra mechanics added to the mix in Starship Traveller, like a whole crew to roll up and ship-to-ship combat rules, along with modifications to the standard fighting fantasy melee rules to accommodate the larger groups engaging in most of the combats. I think they've all got potential, but Focusing on one additional set of rules would have provided a nice change of pace without getting too bogged down in details. And I think in general, that's, that's the approach that later fighting fantasy books have taken of, of having the core system and then one thing bolted on. Much as I, I loved rolling up the crew, they don't actually add very much to the proceedings. And none of them feel like anything other than disposable pawns to be sacrificed for the greater mission. And that, that's a real pity. Again, there's no shortage of ideas. In fact, there's too many ideas and none of them get developed in enough depth to make them meaningful. There's so many new rules that a bunch of them get shunted off from the intro pages into the main body of the text, which feels really awkward, especially when you consider the whole book is only 340 sections long. And that's a full 60 short of the previously established 400 standard. I mean, That shouldn't matter. A book should be as long as it needs to be, but if there's one thing that the first three game books had established, it was that 400 sections happened to be a decent length for an adventure that felt epic without outstaying its welcome. Starship Traveller ends up managing to feel both too long and too short at the same time. There's too many ideas presented one after the other, but none of them end up feeling very satisfying. I think the biggest reason for this difficulty comes from the problem of applying the form of a game book to an adventure with such interstellar scope. The appeal of a spacecraft is that it opens up the whole galaxy and more to exploration. You can go anywhere, you can do anything. In Star Trek this gave the writers a more or less unlimited canvas on which to paint their adventures. Video games and tabletop RPGs find it easy to take advantage of this freedom. Like classic 80s video game elite is a brilliant example of this being done with great simplicity. The game book, by contrast, works best with a highly constrained setting, particularly dungeons, where the writer can appropriately present a curtailed list of options without sacrificing that feeling of verisimilitude. Uh, Jackson had already shown how much you could do with a very small setting in Citadel of Chaos, which is that book is Really claustrophobic in design. And then Livingstone presented a way of taking the format into a naturalistic setting in the Forest of Doom, which worked, it worked really well. Jackson then tries to go genuinely vast and it doesn't quite work. Now, in Warlock of Firetop Mountain, the stone corridors got repetitive quite quickly. Space, it turns out, is even more monotonous. There's little to differentiate most of the planets other than the colour of the planet and the star as well and a few contextual clues to suggest whether beaming down might be advantageous or perilous. Uh, I liked the volcano planet because I felt like that was somewhere I could divine myself whether to stay and investigate or just take a pass. And I think even more problematic is that adventure doesn't feel like it has much of a shape so Forest of Doom has two heavily wooded areas with plains and hills sitting between them. At the end of the adventure, I felt I could have worked out where I hadn't explored just from the mental image of the Forest of Doom I built up through play without even doing a map. Citadel of Chaos has an even more explicit structure with the courtyard and the tower itself. It's really, really easy to grasp where you might need to explore. At the end of Starship Traveller, I just didn't feel like I had any sense of the shape of the universe I was in or what a better path might look like. I think if it had been done on a smaller scale, perhaps the scale of a solar system with clear progression between, say, three planets and then various space-based hijinks stringing them together, I think that maybe could have worked really well. The elephant in the room, though, is Starship Traveller isn't very well written the illustrations aren't very good either, but I feel less qualified to talk about that since I'm not much of an artist, but I do write a lot. and The prose has a stilted quality to it. The description is often vague. Various aliens are described as being sort of like this or quite like something else. Like Buildings of various shapes and sizes are described at one point, which is just the laziest imagery. Like when I'm editing prose, whether it's my own or someone else's, one of the first things I try and do is cut out all those lazy qualifiers. When you write the first draft of anything, you're you're fumbling for words. So you tend to throw in placeholder descriptions and weak imagery. They're in the the right area, but aren't laser focused. Usually, not always, but usually your prose will be strengthened if you replace qualifiers and weak imagery with specific words and strong imagery. That hasn't happened here. Everything seems clumsy and flat. There's no emotional context to the action, scarcely any emotional content to the story at all. Like, crew members die, there's a couple of suicides and they go mad, but nothing has any dramatic heft to it. I mean, to me, it feels as though this may have been a casualty of a tight publishing deadline. And from my research, I see some suggestions that Jackson may have admitted as much in interviews. It's not all bad, though. As I said earlier, there are some fabulous set pieces struggling to get out. I think of the ones I encountered, the demented population control robots might be my absolute favourite, because I could see that as the basis for an actual episode of Star Trek, in which the problem of population control versus the unalienable sanctity of life are resolved through a closely contested fist fight. There's an episode in season three of the original series which approaches the same issue, but Without the crazy murder robots, which feels like a a missed opportunity on the part of Gene Roddenberry. If you have the opportunity for crazy murder robots, I think you should take it. It's also a low combat book, which I, I do always appreciate. Famously, almost no one actually played through the fighting fantasy books properly. But as someone who's committed to doing more or less that, I really like the ones where quick thinking and the right choices can circumvent at least some of the violence, not least because that does increase the replay value. It adds a little spice to previous encounters when they've got multiple different possible paths through them. Um, And that's something that Steve Jackson does particularly well, constructing encounters that are quite dense in terms of their outcomes. Even if he's not at his best here, there's still a certain intricacy to the design that I really do appreciate. If that had been married to a strong central narrative and some tighter writing, I genuinely think this could have been a classic. Lastly, there's the issue of emergent narrative. One element I enjoyed maybe too much on this playthrough was the way I, the player, and by extension the captain of the Traveller, was extremely incompetent. And it turned what ought to have been a sort of story of exploration and adventure into a, a sequence of pathetic pratfalls interspersed with the occasional death of a supporting character. Now, that's something you quite often get in tabletop role-playing games, but it's less common to be able to make it to the end of a game book, despite having made many terrible decisions. So I I enjoyed the chance to subvert ordinary narrative expectations and present an emergent story that was much more in keeping with how I conduct my real life. It's less escapist, perhaps, than I might prefer, but I can't fault it for stepping outside expected boundaries. This playthrough ended up as a kind of mosquito coast in space. And yeah, I like that a lot. Well, I think I've overthought about Starship Traveller quite enough by this point. So I'm going to close out the episode. Thank you very much for listening. I do hope you've had a pleasant time. If you have, please consider leaving a review to help more people find the podcast perhaps tell a friend or two if you've had a particularly nice time. You can follow me on Twitter at hjdoom, and you can email the podcast at hjdoomretrofun at gmail.com. Thanks to Haunted Phonograph for hosting this podcast, and I'll see you again soon.